we knew that what we were doing was grounded in a reality in a spiritual base that there was no other alternate to go to. And so my work has grown in that sense to very directly from my colleagues in Africa. Black creativity is unstoppable. The Studio Noise podcast takes you into the studio with Black artists and creatives making the art that moves the culture. You get to feel all the inspiration, technique, and passion behind the people making paintings, making sculptures, making prints, making noise. It's the Studio Noise podcast with your host, Jamal Barber. It's the noise. Yes, it's your boy, Jay Barber. We all stand on platforms built by those that came before us. We should all know and acknowledge the people that fought for us to be able to do what we do. When you get a chance to hear from people that blaze those trails, you should listen. You should soak up all of that knowledge and be thankful for the opportunity to receive such a wonderful gift, right? To talk with your elders. Today is a special episode because I get to learn more about and talk to Mr. Napoleon Jones Henderson, member of the legendary Black art collective known as Afro-Cobra. From 1969 until now, he embodies that spirit of collective understanding, working to make art for the people. His textiles, prints, mixed media, and public art all have those vibrant colors, the community focus, the energy that Afro-Cobra is known for. We talk about the start of the collective, the people and experience that define the group from his perspective on the inside and what art means to him. This is definitely one of my favorite episodes. You know, the mission of this podcast is to entertain and inspire. Yes, I want to keep y'all going, but also to archive the voices of contemporary black art. You can go to StudioNoisePodcast.com, join the Studio Noise Patreon and support this mission. I mean, Knapp said it in the episode, when you lose an elder, a library burns to the ground. We get to save this information with this podcast and keep that line and legacy alive for everybody else that comes after us. Go ahead and tell two art lovers. We got Napoleon Jones Henderson, the great Afro-Cobra artist right here. After the break... It's nation time. That's right. It's the noise. Yes. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Hamilton. I'm an artist, educator, and you are listening to Studio Noise. It's your boy, Jay Barber. He was Studio Noise. Got a very special guest with you today. I got Mr. Napoleon Jones Henderson on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, man. How you doing? Hey, brother. I'm still vertical. And as long as I'm vertical, everything else is cool, you know? <laughs> I know that's right, man. I know that's right. And Napoleon, he's been an artist for a long, long time, man. He joined Africa back in, way back in the day. Yeah, and, you know, I'm sure. in 1968. Yeah, 1968, man. Wow. Like, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, talking to somebody that has an art career going back that far, they've seen a lot of things. They've done a lot of things. You know, that's the kind of stuff we like to hear about on the show, man. So uh, I guess we'll start uh, way back in the day, man. Tell me about you growing up before Africobra, like your art your art experience back then? Well, before Africobra, uh, well, I'll just put it this way. Before Africobra officially, uh, I think I was born Africobra in the context of, you know, being from a, a family and community that was clear about who they were, are, and am. And I would say that for my all of my life as a young man in grammar school, I uh, always did excel uh, in the visual arena and was always encouraged, not only by my family and neighbors, but an extended community, but also by my teachers. And so I really took off when I reached high school because of uh, a young sister who had uh, graduated from uh, University of Arkansas Pine Bluff 
named Helen Joyner came to Chicago and took over the art department in my high school. And that's when she opened the door to all of us that the visual arts was uh, a lot more than just simply pretty pictures. Mm-hmm. It was a matter of a way of living and a way of sharing. And so uh, I would say very clearly with the support of my family uh, uh, and with her encouragement, as well as all the other faculty in our high school, which was George Washington Carver High School in Gale Gardens, uh, you know, the real bug was fully uh, broken out of its uh, uh, cocoon. And here I am still today flying on that, that, that air current that was given to me at that point in time. That's right, man. They made it a way of life, it seemed like. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when I graduated from high school, Helen Joyner, my uh, art teacher in high school, uh, decided to go back to the Illinois Institute of Technology to get a uh, master's degree in textile weaving. And uh, throughout high school, she introduced myself and many of the other students to various manners of textile manipulation. And uh, I used to babysit her children while she was <laughs> in school at night, you know, and of course, uh, from that relationship in high school and then just after with her and her family as she was attending IIT for that degree, uh, we became, you know, clearly, uh, my, she was my mentor and we, it nursed itself into a colleague relationship until her passing, but uh, it was surely a long relationship that was nurtured by someone who was uh, grounded in who she was as a person and who we are as a people. And so, you know, surely she has a very uh, strong fingerprint on who I am as a visual image maker. Absolutely. So is that how you got into textile? Your early work was a lot of textile. This Well, yeah, my, my principal medium when I went to the Art Institute of Chicago was to major in textile weaving. Of which I did. Uh, But while there, uh, we, uh, as first year students in in the 1960s at schools such as the Art Institute in Chicago, um, we, for the first two years, took basic courses. We had to take everything weaving, fashion design, printmaking, they had glass blowing, uh, sculpture, uh, bronze and metal casting, woodworking, painting, drawing. Uh, you name it, every course that they offered, we had to take all of them. And at the end of our second year, that's when we could, so to speak, choose a major that we wanted to uh, pursue. Because uh, in hindsight, looking back on it, when you first walk into a, an art school for a four-year degree, you don't know your elbow from your eyeball <laughs> in terms of what it is you really want to do because you haven't really yeah. experienced the possibilities of the various mediums. Yes. And so, uh, although you don't even know what you don't know. Oh, absolutely. And so my focus, my intent in terms of a textile degree was further enhanced by my being exposed to all these other uh, mediums of expression that I did not know the technical aspects of. And so from that point forward, I went, went on down the road because my uh, core instructor was uh, Elsa Regensteiner, who was uh, a extraordinarily gifted textile weaver. Uh, she was a uh, uh, survivor of the Holocaust and found herself teaching at the Art Institute in Chicago. And I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to spend uh, the four years I was there at the Art Institute under her tutelage. And uh, that too continued similar to Helen Joyner, my high school teacher, as a relationship that continued past graduation into uh, adulthood as a uh, practicing studio artist, of which she uh, remained a good friend and colleague throughout that. She did a lot of research and she included me, uh, reached out to me to include me in many of her publications, her books. That's and awesome. And so, you know, my earlier years before Africober were really very rich and foundational in the context of becoming uh, masterful in the textile arts. And it's not just simply weaving. If it's from shearing sheep to spinning wool to spinning cotton, picking cotton and braiding hair. Because my two daughters, you know, braided their hair for all their life. <laughs> they were glad when they got to be in high school where they could avoid that. But before that, <laughs> hey, it was me. And they enjoyed it. And so 
uh, you know, the, the, the experience of, of life was uh, very exciting and very rich uh, from uh, grammar school all the way through uh, my undergraduate degree, you know. And in 1962, my uh, year out of high school, first year out of high school, I had the opportunity to uh, get a, a, a small scholarship when I was in junior college from the assistance of my art teacher at that time in junior college to spend uh, a summer studying uh, French art history and drawing in, uh, in Paris, France with at wow. the American Artists and Students Center in the Sorbonne. So uh, that was, again, another one of those uh, eye-opening experience of, experiences of life that you can't plan for, but when they occur, if you're prepared, you step into it and you come out on the other end right. and you're a broader and grounded person. And so, uh, of course, I made a couple of very lifelong friends from that journey. And uh, as my uncle said when I got back, because I came back with my, with my, with my fro, because I couldn't get the haircut <laughs> over there. They just didn't cut that folks' hair, so that was cool. Plus, it didn't stop me from doing anything. And I met all these other uh, folks from the non-European world, from all over the, the the what they call the Southeast and the Middle East and Africa and everywhere else. And they were all students at the Cité uh, Sorbonne, and we just uh, had uh, an extraordinarily interesting time. Uh, truly an expansion and opening of my uh, uh, horizons in terms of what I could do as a person and as a visual image maker. And when I got back, as my uncle uh, uh, indicated to me, he said, boy, you know, uh, something happened to you. What is it? I said, well, you know, I got an expansion, you know, and it, it took what you gave me and I've added on to that. And uh, he said, well, something happened because you didn't get a haircut. What's the cause of that hair? You know, I said, oh, I'm, scared, you know, I'm not getting another haircut. Okay, I don't need to. It didn't stop me into doing anything as I traveled around the world, so I don't need it, and it's not going to stop me here. And uh, so from 1962 coming on forward, uh, this has been me, you know. And uh, the, the hair, as it came to be a symbol of, affirmation for us in the 60s and coming on forward, uh, that affirmation was uh, something that found its way into the visual imagery as well in terms of the works that I and my uh, collaboration and joining with AfriCobra uh, has continued for all of these 53 years uh, as AfriCobra, the group, and as me, the practicing studio artist that I am, you know. And it's about making what I call visual music, and uh, it's a uh, it's a jam. Absolutely, man! I love it, yo. So now we get to to that point. Tell me about the African Commune of Bad Relevant Artists. Well, the, the Commune of Bad Relevant Artists, and you know the key word is relevant because you can consider yourself as bad as you think you are. <laughs> But if you ain't relevant, you ain't bad at all. You know, right. and that's uh, bad before the Jackson 5, okay? And uh, <laughs> so we, Africobra, I would say in its fundamental uh, footing, is uh, the pursuit of the affirmation of the African aesthetic. Uh, and that's worldwide. Because uh, as we uh, came together, uh, and sat and talked and cooked and shared meals and family and had children as they were born and grew up in the uh, arms of all of us as Afro-Cobra members, whether we were the birth parents of them or the uh, intellectual and aesthetic parents of these children. They were all, we were a family and still are a family. And so as a family, uh, it's about support and encouragement and also uh calling people out when they're stepping in the wrong direction to help them move in the right direction, not because that's the wrong direction. And actually, there is no particular direction, from my point of view, that's a wrong direction. It may not be the one that is the most efficient or effective, but if one takes the opportunity and the time to look at what has occurred, there is a benefit and a growth in that. 
if nothing more than to know I don't do that again because it's the affirmative outcome of that. And so we set about and came together in discussion and uh, colleagueship and uh, put together a manifesto, uh, a set of principles by which uh, aesthetic principles that we work by and a philosophy that underpin our thinking and our uh, image making and production of work throughout all of these years. So it's uh, grounded in a philosophy. And that philosophy is about the affirmation of the African aesthetic and uh, making uh, damn sure that it is uh, understood, appreciated, and encouraged. And we've done that uh, by having a continued uh, engagement with the community. Uh, You know, we don't assume to know. We are in the process and always in the learning mode. And the community is the affirmation of the knowing, in quotes. If we do know, the community affirms it to us that they can say, right on, keep on doing that. And we've had that encouragement and that support for all of these 53 plus years. And so uh, I don't see it in anything, in any other way than... uh, We've made the uh, spiritual and aesthetic connection to the community, and uh, we've seen the results of that. One of them being sitting here talking with you, you know. Yeah, you absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, as much as people focus on kind of the work and the programs, I think what I'm hearing you say and, and what I really love about it is that family aspect, like that you were bringing up about y'all commuting together, like being together and, uh, you know, raising each other's kids, like, you know, that kind of interaction. Tell me about the early days and kind of that interaction and how y'all kind of, how it benefited you as an artist. Uh, well, the benefit was that we had a support base and we were, the, we each other were each other's support base. And when we were in Chicago in the mid uh, late 60s through early 70s, most of the time we would meet over at Wadsworth Terrell's big studio on Hyde Park area, uh, just off of Stony Island on 6200 block. Uh, we would all come together. We'd bring our work in progress and we would uh, spend the day uh, looking not only at the work, talking about the work, talking about international and national affairs of African people across the board, because if you recall the earlier works and as well as continually, but more specifically in the very early works, there was a very direct uh, dialogue conversation that we were having visually with the larger African uh, world. Mm -hmm. And it was framed, yes, within the context of the continental United States, but it was within the framework of the Pan-Africanist concept of that it's African people worldwide. And we would come together on on those uh, Sundays and spend the entire day at Wadsworth Studio looking at work, talking about the work, talking and having dialogue with each other about what we thought about the work that one or the other was doing, how that work might best be uh, uh, assisted in getting to the place where you're trying to take it as the individual creator of that work. And those critiques were about uh, affirmation and not about speaking about the negative, it wasn't about any negative stuff because there was nothing negative in it because what we were doing was pursuing a pathway of positivity. And so Mm -hmm. as long as the discussion, and it was not ever anything other than that, the discussions were about how do we create and make this work do what it is, is written in our philosophy and in our visual aesthetics. And so the, in a manner of speaking, it was a workshop. It was a laboratory. It was a school. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Context in which we came together and sharpened our axe so that when we struck a blow, we got a clean cut. You know, no funny edges about it. It was a clean cut. And to the extent that it may have been a clean cut, but then there's still more sharpening that one can do to that axe. And so we continue right. to the day to sharpen that, that axe so that when we make strike a blow, it's clear. Oh man, I love that man. That that's that sounds like a good time right there. Oh, it was a good time now, you know. Uh, and and the proof of it is we still hanging out 
53 years. Yeah, for sure. That's great, man. So your personal work, did you see your personal work um, shift and change like during this time? I would say my personal work grew because I don't see necessarily, I don't ascribe to people's work necessarily changing or, or, or to the extent that what it, what it becomes as one engages it is a growth. Mm, and yeah. that is just an evolution. And the evolution is something quite, in my mind, different than a change. A change right. uh, more often is understood as moving from one to another, as opposed to sharpening and continuing to grow in the path of righteousness that you find yourself in, as opposed to going someplace different. And so it's never looking for a the golden calf. It's not mm-hmm. that. We knew that what we were doing was grounded in a reality in a spiritual base that there was no other alternate to go to. It was to continue that path. And so my work has grown in that sense to uh, very directly from my colleagues in Africa. Uh, Nelson Devitt, a very in-depth skilled uh, painter with acrylic paint, Jeff's watercolor and gouache, Barbara Jones in printmaking, and uh, those uh, print mediums, Jay in her uh, textiles, Wadsworth in his oil paintings, and 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 and, and Gerald in his uh, oil acrylic paintings, and so the the individual identities of all of us have uh, amalgamated itself into a synthesis that all of us share a part of. But within that synthesis, there is the individual identity of each of us as creators of our own images. But those images are, are rooted in uh, the aesthetics and the philosophy of Afro-Cobra. And so my growth is simply an expansion of my absorption of the relationship from all of the other members of Afro-Cobra. Right. And I would say it's the same in the opposite direction because uh, there is... You can't have a love affair and not be affected by and take on some of the attributes of the ones that you're having that affair with. And so the love affair has been one of a spiritual and aesthetic, you know, journey that we're still on. And I would say that uh, proof is in the pudding. We still hang in and we're still creating. And uh, my work has surely... uh, emerged into other areas of expression in terms of installation and video and film. Yeah. And of course, all the print medium. And so I have uh, very definitely uh, found that uh, for cultivating one's own self through active engagement in life experiences will serve you quite well. And surely... If you are affirmed in what it is you are doing, uh, you don't need, in the sense, you're not, you don't need anyone else's affirmation for you to feel affirmed in what it is you're doing, because it affirms itself and the community affirms it for you by affirming you. I love that, man. And so recently, y'all have had the um, the honor of being in the Venice Biennale. Uh, so that's been, you know, a 50-year celebration of all the work that Africoba has done. Uh, I want to talk about that, but I also want to ask about, like, one of the early shows that you remember and and if you felt the impact of what you were doing on the community and how, to, how to, was the reception at that time. And then fast forward to 50 years later being uh, presented on such a big stage. Okay. That's a very, very interesting uh, question in this sense, that the show, the earlier show, which I would say was our very first exhibition as a group after Cobra, uh, Ten in Search of a Nation at the Studio Museum in Harlem when it was located on 125th and Madison and Fifth Avenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were invited to show by Ed Spriggs 
who was the director at that time, and we had uh, Bill Day and, and, and Valerie Maynard, and those individuals who were connected with the Studio Museum at that time. Uh, and that first show, uh, we painted all the walls in the museum in the gallery space Kool-Aid colors, the, all the reds and greens and purples and lemonade colors, and the, the place was just vibrating with color. And then mm-hmm. the, work, the work was placed on those backgrounds. And the community came to the opening, and I mean, it was a buzz. The music, the people, the, the manner of dress, the whole orchestration, I would say the entire performance of that opening, that celebration with the community of these 10 artists from Chicago moved into Harlem, uh, was very, very instrumental because and informative in this sense that uh, we created a ballot, just a little sheet of paper with the question that was, if you could own any of these works, which ones would you prefer in the preference of choice of one to three? Put your first choice, second choice, third choice. And uh, from that balloting, we were able to have identified for us from the community which works in there vibrated the most with them. And what we did was we created silkscreen prints of those particular works. Mm, We we broke down the barrier of a single work to multiples where many people can own some of it, as Jeff would say. So everybody can own a piece of Africa. And then the next year we came back, we were invited back for an exhibition and we came back with some of those works produced as prints. And you may now have observed some of them in the quote secondary market out there uh, on that still exists that are being collected. And so I would say that was probably the most pivotal uh, of our earlier exhibitions. And fast forward to the show that was reconfigured of those works for the most part from the Studio Museum exhibition at MOCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Miami, uh, in 2018, was uh, really a repeat of that exhibition in 1970, in terms of not only the works, but in terms of the responses of the people who came to the exhibition. Some of them were were, present in 1970 at the exhibition. And there were a lot of folks like your age and others who had come and were involving and engaging in the same manner in 2018 as they did in 1970. Right. And so uh, as a result of that show, uh, the situation went forward and we were uh, invited to be at the uh, Venice Biennale, the 58th Biennale in 2019, and we then had the uh, benefit of having that kind of, that same kind of conversation from the international world that was in Venice. And so uh, as a result of that, I I got connected to and was invited to be a part of the person, just my own particular work in the uh, Sydney Biennale in 2020, uh, Sydney, Australia. Nice. Uh, which got complicated with the whole COVID situation. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Made a mess out of things. But <laughs> we prevailed as creative people. It still prevailed and went forward. And, uh, you know, uh, it's been exciting. And for you, like you talk about the people that were at the first show, like you being in that show and the Venice um, show, what were your feelings about it? Like, like, you know, you got such a long view of, uh, the legacy that y'all have in built. I mean, it's your personal history, so maybe you don't see it like that. But what were you feeling in that moment, like standing there in the gallery space in Venice, like imagining all the all the meals, all the critiques, all the <laughs> friendships and hugs? Like, you know, what was it like for you? Well, it was it was to to be very brief with it. It was an affirmation that we were clear and have been on the right journey. You know, uh, as Sunrise says, you know, space is the place and we were always in that space. 
And that space that we were in was, in fact, the place. And that place is the aesthetics of African people. And so uh, a part of our Chicago experience was the AACM, the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, who were always a part of Afrikobra in the context of what they were doing musically in the auditory uh, arena. We were doing visually in the 2 and 3D dimensions. And so it's, which is why I deal with it from the point of view of, 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 of naming it as visual music. It's a, a manner of creating visually the things that happen auditorily and the things that happen sight-wise and the things that happen and that are uh, generated spiritually from those experiences. Those, res those experiences auditorily and visually and in the physical context of being present at something are the same things you get at church, the things mm. you get in the religious exercise of the religious performance. And so uh, the sound, and that includes the voice, because the voice is a part of the, 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 the works that we do because our responses as Afrikobra image makers, we see echoed by the viewers when people see the work and the kinds of commentary and the kinds of responses they make that are generated by those works. And so we, those works have been able to uh, touch all of those senses, the auditory, the sound, the spiritual, and the visual. And I would say even the sense of smell. Mm. They, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can taste and smell the the potency of visual works that actually speak at a level that is beyond just simply being quote pretty works, right? Works that imbue the spiritual and aesthetic qualities of a people that step off the surface of whatever the mediums we might use to create that visual image uh, to the person that's in front of it. That's awesome, man. <laughs> I can I can imagine, man. And um, you know, I have to congratulate you, you know what I'm saying, and all of Africa for doing such a great job and continuing to do that work and inspire people like me. You know what I'm saying? Even even now through the ages, and I'm sure it's people that were just introduced to y'all just through the Venice show that oh. are now like uh being becoming a part of the legacy of what y'all built, all y'all together. Well, we, you know, in a way of speaking, you and the countless thousands of other uh, up and coming and some now established, because we're we're a little bit mature here uh, <laughs> as as, as Africobra, uh, are the continuation of Africobra in the context that we most of us have taught at various colleges and universities our entire adult careers. Uh, some HBCUs, others not HBCUs, but nonetheless, we have by our presence with you as students in our classrooms and workshops and, and at our openings and all other manner of activities that individually and collectively we've been doing over these 50 plus years have been uh, informed and bathed, if you will, in the aesthetics and philosophy of Africa. And you have, by extension, as we all do, by our experiences, absorbed some of that experience and it comes out as a manifestation of what we do. So that aspect of uh, Africa over these years has been and is uh, a very gratifying, you know, observance by all of us as we look about at image makers like yourself and others who are uh, creating this landscape that is uh, clearly an affirmation of the African aesthetic that goes back four or five thousand years. Because it hasn't, it's not new, it's continued. It's right. a continuum. Right. We just let arc.
This is Alexis McGrigg. I am a visual and performing artist, and you are listening to Studio Noise. I guess I'm going to turn it um, to your personal work a little bit because um, I, I love your, <clears throat> excuse me, I love the images that you make. Uh, I love the colors and the play and the energy. And I, I'm going to use one of the pieces and we can kind of go into your thought process behind making. It's going to Duke. Um, that piece is is really something, man. Like, I, I really like it. Um, the shape, the color, the, the play, the dance. Um, tell me about it. Uh, well, that piece comes out of a series of pieces, I, a series I've been working on called uh, Requiem for Our Ancestors. Is this and still ongoing? This, this it's still series? ongoing. It's a, it's, a, it's a series I sort of singularly isolated out of the larger series of my work uh, in the early 2000s, around 2002. Uh, and the piece is... Uh, a homage to the aesthetic brilliance of Duke in the musical, the poetry, the visual context of his work. Because, you know, uh, his titles of his works are all about the visual language. And it's, others may not see it that way, I do. And that uh, that particular piece is informed by the uh, celebratory ceremony of the Egungun in Nigeria in the sense of the manner in which the uh, ceremony in celebration is uh, given life is the dancers who have these elegant headpieces and this large costume of textile fabric. And as they perform the Igungun ceremony, it's a spinning of the bodies of the dancers and the fabric is flowing and disturbing the, the atmosphere, the air. And we all have grown up knowing full well that the spirits are always with us. And so you can't see them, but you know they're there. You can feel them, you can hear them, but you cannot necessarily see them. So during this ex, uh, 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 performance, the spinning of those garments are agitating and bringing to life the spirits that are present in the community amongst the people. And so the lower portion of that piece from the enamel portraiture of Duke Ellington, that classic photograph of him in his tuxedo, mm -hmm. uh, is my visual representation in a kind of static sense, the aspect of the dancing Igungun textile garment. And those elements at the bottom of the Duke piece are actually, some people refer to them as ties, but they're not ties. Each one of those are individually made by myself using fabric and, and, and my sewing machines and various other kinds of instruments and beads and, and, and cowrie shells and gold leaf and all manner of other materials are applied to the textile element of that to give it that spiritual uh, uh, sacred garment context. And mm -hmm. so that lower portion is not a portion that looks like the human form, but it looks like a large draped uh, portion of the human form where you can't see legs, arms, anything. You just see this plethora of textile. And in a way of speaking, you can feel the dance of that agungun uh, if you take yourself to that place spiritually of the agungun. And so that particular one, Duke, and the other one that came along with it at the time was do Lord remember me. That's the one of the little girl uh, on our way to church with her uh, New Testament Bible in her hand with her gloves on and her little necklace on. And that was when she was being taken to church by her grandmother. She has just come a little young lady and off the church she goes. And so she too is carrying that essence of the Agungun and of the ancestors that she has become of age where she can uh, if you will, begin to understand the presence of the spirits of her ancestors present in that ceremony of religious uh, ecstasy that she experiences on Sunday in church. And then you take that and tag it back to Duke Ellington and his suite of sacred music. 
So you've got in that particular area or genre of Duke Ellington and the era and genre of the young lady uh, on our way to church, those are the same spiritual experiences. Mm. And I, I'm seeking to make those things manifest in the visual works by incorporating the textiles and the uh, two-dimensional uh, uh, depiction of the likeness of either Duke Ellington or any other person uh, in the pieces. And so they have gone have evolved from those small pieces to pieces that are like seven feet high now and fully three-dimensional. Wow. Such as the one I did uh, in commemoration to the four little girls who were uh, murdered in the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in 1964. So it's, it's the, the, the works have become three-dimensional, performative, and uh, inclusive of other elements such as film and video because the current number of pieces I'm working on right now will be employing uh, video projections that are a part of the piece itself. So, um, you know, all the new technologies, all the new, well, not, I don't call them technologies, all the new materials. Mm, yeah. I'm making use of them. Yeah. And I depend on the youngsters like you to help hook me up when I get find myself in a, in a tight spot. Give me a buzz up and say, <laughs> how do I get this chip to work over here to the left? Because I needed to go not just to the left, but I needed to come back to the right at the same time when I call. Yeah. Them. Yeah. I, I ask artists like you that, that, um, dance between all these different mediums like you say like what is it that calls you to each specific medium because i mean i see like you do a lot of stuff like you've done printmaking the textiles um you know enamel on copper right like you're doing like all this kind of stuff like how do you how do you choose the mediums or what is the thought process that gets you there well actually at this particular point in my career uh all of those Materials are materials I have a uh, finesse and a skill at using very well. And so, uh, in a way of speaking, the particular work idea that I'm seeking to make manifest in a visual three-dimensional context or two-dimensional context pretty much tells me what material I might or should pursue to make that work manifest. And again, some of sometimes it's driven by whether these are works that are being done as public works in large institutions and such, because I do a lot of public artworks, uh, and they are in some smaller to scales of 29 feet by 10 feet high uh, pieces of work. And that scale and that type of location being a public venue does have certain limitations and requirements that can't be avoided that only certain materials will accommodate. And so enamel and copper is one of those. So using a material, which is basically what it is, is fused glass to metal, fired at a high temperature of 15, 1700 degrees Fahrenheit, and then adhered to a surface that is uh, rigid enough to support this piece and those pieces have weighed as much as uh, a ton and a half. Uh, So works that go in the public venue because of the various uh, requirements for public pieces, uh, materials such as uh, enamel and copper are the choice, but on works that are smaller, such as the ones you referenced, Duke, uh, the Google for Duke and others along that realm are, uh, Many times they have mixed disciplines. Uh, it's like the Duke. It's textiles, it's enamel, it's beadwork, it's uh, gold leafing, and it's all of those sort of things. So it's really, I don't necessarily really, I don't believe I make a choice. I think the materials and the image makes the choice for me. Right. It's simply uh, the executor of that uh, choice and use of materials, and I'm continually uh, developing my skill base in newer materials to the extent that they can make manifest what I can see in my head. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that, that kind of, uh, of curiosity, right? I got, that's how I see it as like you have an idea and you're wondering if there's a material that can do the thing that you needed to do. 
much less, much less than, you know, sometimes as me as a printmaker, for instance, it'll be like, uh, how can I make this a great woodcut? You know, and kind of the ideas is, is tailored and shaved down to get it um, to work in a particular medium. But having that curiosity, I think is great that you could just like, no, this idea may not be 100 if it's a woodcut. Maybe it needs to be like painted or you know, enamel, glass, or, you know, what, whatever it is. You know what right. I mean? Yeah, I hear that. I hear that because uh, I remember uh, uh, some etchings I made uh, using plexiglass. Uh, and I was I was teaching at Benedict College in Columbia, South Carolina, and had a very limited budget for material and equipment. But there was a plastic factory that I could get all the plastic I throw off that they didn't need or couldn't sell. And I used a uh, soldering iron to carve the images into the surface and got an extraordinary interesting texture because the plastic doesn't disappear. It softens and melts and it creates this little sort of keloid feel uh, on the edge of the line that's being incised in the plastic with the uh, 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 iron. And then when you ink it and print it, uh, the kinds of effects you get couldn't have been imagined other than trying the, the, the soldering iron on the plastic. So right. and that was the availability of materials with the lack of availability of resources to get anything with. So, you know, as we say, <laughs> you make something out of nothing, you know, make yeah. it out of no way. Yeah. And that's another manner of etching that I've been playing around with for the last maybe 10 years uh, because of that if you will, accidental discovery, uh, driven by need more. Right. I need more money to get more material. I need more <laughs> equipment, but I ain't got it, so I make way out of nothing. You know, and there we go. I'm off and running now. Yeah, yeah. So you already well before we started talking, you said you were already working on like another public art piece. Um, let's talk about your public art works a little bit. Uh, I'm gonna talk about. I mean, mention one in particular, Rhapsody and Knowledge. Oh um, yeah which is a, a tremendous piece. I, I love the shape of it. Like, um, tell me about how do you made, moved into the public art world and about that piece, Rhapsody and Knowledge? Well, my first venture into public art was an invitation for work for the Hartfield International Airport there in Atlanta in 1982. Oh, uh, Maynard Jackson? Yeah, under yeah. Maynard Jackson. And uh, the particular piece, Rhapsody and Knowledge, is the most recent piece I installed in 2020, January, just right at the opening of the door of COVID-19 and the shutting down just shortly after I got it in. I, I, I was uh, thankful I found that little window and I got the piece installed. Uh, but it's a library in the Black community there in Roanoke, Virginia. And there's a new library. And I was invited to uh, submit for that competition, I was awarded the, the, the work and the uh, entire piece is a ensemble of three individual uh, standing sculptural pieces. They're, and the shapes are curvilinear rectangles, as I call them, because they're a curve like a, uh, it, it's very similar to a Japanese fan that you see that they take in frame mm, Japanese mm -hmm. fans. It's the very same shape. Because if you were to straighten out uh, into a horizontal line, the two curved sides, it becomes a rectangle. And But if you take it and turn it into a curve, it's a curvilinear rectangle is what I call the form. But one of my uh, young colleagues called them uh, noodles, noodle noodles. <laughs> and so I'm down with that. But what you see in those works is that I found through using that form, which I've been playing around with that form for probably about 25 years now, give or take in and out of different works, uh, it allows for another visual dynamic in the composition. And that's different than a triangle or a square or other such rigid form. It has this organic curvilinear form and it allows it to be spontaneous in a way of speaking and it also uh, encourages movement or travel from one space to the other. If you come around the arc of that piece, you're traveling from the lower base to the upper base. And the aspect that it's 
works to be installed on a library, the images there speak to, the smallest one speaks to the young children, the next size one speaks to the uh, adolescent children, and the larger ones speak to the adults. You have those three generational levels utilizing the library, and the rhapsody is that you take all of that language, all of those ideas, and all of that information that's bound between the covers of those books, and you orchestrate that as a composition that's a rhapsody, meaning reaching a higher level of ecstasy, if you absorb all of that information, and it then allows you to become any number of things that you choose to be in life, if only you partake of the knowledge that's encapsulated between those covers. And so that's why the, the ensemble is entitled Rhapsody in Knowledge, because you have those three age categories that are playing in, visually in that space with one with the other, but they are all partaking of the same nourishment, which is the knowledge contained in the library. And that nourishment then moves them on to a higher level. And so all of these public art commissions are driven by my relationship with the communities in which those pieces reside. And they are very much uh, active engagement between myself and the community. I see myself as the instrument to make manifest the aesthetic and uh, spiritual desires of that community that have taken me in as a member of the community by inviting me to create a work there that is a collaboration between me and that community. What's been the largest um, piece that you've done, public art? Uh, the largest piece I've done is a piece that, uh, well, I've done one, two, three that size. They're 28, 29 feet by 10 feet. Wow. And one that, that one was at the uh, convention center in Providence, Rhode Island. Which what is was now, the name of that one? It's called uh, uh, um, Prevalence of, uh, Pre Presence of Our Ancestors. Okay. Uh, pro, no, procession of our ancestors. Procession of our ancestors. Okay. That was in 1987. So the ancestor thing has always been the underpinning in my work here because the spirits and the ancestors are there. And then the next one was one at uh, the uh, uh, Roxbury Community College, which is a set of uh, decorative doors leading into the library, uh, which there is 10 feet by 10 feet square, two five foot by 10 foot doors. There's enamel on copper on uh, carved two-inch mahogany. Wow. Uh, and the latest one, which is the Bruce Bowling Municipal Building, which is uh, entitled uh, Roxbury Rhapsody. And the uh, that's right here in Roxbury, not more than maybe five blocks from where I live. Wow. Uh, is a piece that I had uh, three young apprentices work with me. Uh, three young sisters who uh, were just extraordinary, which they have now become my daughters, and they have the the nicety to say that I'm. <laughs> but you know, you know, they're my colleagues, and they're two extra, three extraordinary young sisters who are just kicking kicking it down out there as as visual image makers themselves, and I'm just so proud of them and nice. the fact that they've been able to. They worked with me on that process. This is something I've been wanting to do for quite a long time is to be able to uh, bring some young people into apprenticeship to take possession of all of this knowledge I've been able to acquire in these materials and facilities and just give to them what was given to me by Margaret Burroughs and, and Lily Catlett and Charles White and Jacob. Lawrence and all those people who I hung out with when I was young with the going to the conferences of the National Conference of Black Artists. These were the kinds of engagements I had as a youngster that when they were being given over to me, I was also given the mandate that this ain't for you. This is for you to pass on. Right. Yeah. And so uh, I've been passing that on. We as Africobra have been passing it on and you are passing it on in terms of what you're doing with young people and your teaching and so forth. And so it's, it's a journey and we all have a role in that journey. And when we come on to the path of that journey, we have, need to step up, step on and step out there 
and uh, make sure that somebody else is given that that they can step on and step out there. Absolutely. That's got to be a, a great thing for them. Did they did they reach out to you or you like found them? No, they were they were they were uh, introduced to me through a good colleague of mine, Equa Holmes, who runs a program at the Mass College of Art, uh, Massachusetts College of Art. Uh, when this commission was awarded, uh, thought it would be an extraordinary opportunity for some young artists to be able to work with me in doing uh, working with a medium such as enamel and copper, which very few artists do. Uh, that it would be an extraordinary experience for them just to learn the yeah. technique and to spend, it was actually uh, all of a year working shoulder to shoulder with me as a person knowing full well that while we were doing what we were doing and creating the work, all of what like you and I are doing now is what was going on all the time anyway. You know, the yeah. conversations about this, that, and the other and the journey of my life and their being able to, uh, as Aqua say, understand that you know, uh, artists of African descent create a lot and they do exist and you need to get yourself connected to them so that you can understand that it's not a new thing. It's not an unusual thing. It's a normal thing Mm -hmm. and take advantage of them while they are breathing. Yes. Because you, as old saying, when someone passes on, a whole library is lost. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great opportunity. I can imagine uh, how excited they were to be able to to do that. Yeah, and the interesting thing about it, one of them had just finished graduating with her master's in education. The second one, she had just started as a freshman at Mass College of Art, and the third one was a senior for her BFA. So I had three, if you will, generations of, of, of young student and recently graduated young artists. And uh, it's just, it was for me, just an extraordinary experience having the three of them uh, spend the entire year of 2015 with me with the crazy blizzard of snow we had up here, which was like the only <laughs> we get now. I mean, we had snow up to the yin-yang. <laughs> and uh, we would be over there in that studio. We'd cut a path through that five-foot-high snow and make a path to that studio, and we go out in there. And uh, we used to cook and have meals. we come around because the studio was not too far from my house, so we come back around here. we spend as much time here, you know, looking and them going through all my books and the collection and everything else and cooking and having meals and, and uh, spending time with each other in a family context. They were not apprentices they were just simply uh extension of my family as far as i was concerned and they said yeah. that in the same kind of way so it was it was a beautiful experience that's funny it's funny how we got back to that that idea of family and and nurturing and uh being together like the same way we were talking about that with you and afro cobra right. uh you continually continues on right and they'll, oh. they'll probably do the same thing and give that same gift to somebody else man that legacy Oh, yeah. Well, they, they understand that because, they, see, when, when you receive, when you are prepared to receive and you do receive something, you understand that it's your to pass it on. Right. So it's not something you have to tell someone. That's intuitive and intrinsic in the understanding of the reception of it, taking it on to yourself. Once you receive it, you know it's not yours. It's yours to pass on. You are to use it in the interim, but you pass it on. So uh, it's not, you don't have ownership of the spirit. You don't have ownership of the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. You have use of it and participation in and with it. I love that, man. That's a that's a great note right there, man. I feel like we could talk for like forever, man. <laughs> you get to the yeah, end of the interview. Uh, so uh, real quick, one last question. Like, tell me one piece that you think was emblematic of you as an artist and your style and exactly what you wanted to say. To be, I I, I would say it has been the entirety of my career because mm. there really isn't a point per se. Because 
you know, you, we exist on an arc. And mm. that arc is not broken at points. It's a continuous and continual line that moves not horizontally, but in a curved form. So that place is that the unseen part of the arc only becomes visible when you get there. Mm. And you only get there by continuing the journey. And so to say that there's a point means you have my assessment of it is that you have stopped on the journey somewhere and gotten off and then you get back on. But that's not how it works on an arc. You are on the arc or you're off the arc. Mm -hmm. And so they, all those places along that arc, by example, could be considered points along the path. But I don't see them as points because if it's a point, it's a place of, of, of interruption, a place of right. stopping. And it's not about stopping. It's about continuing in this ebb and flow. There may be high points and low points, but you are continuing in that forward movement. And if you ever sit on the ocean front and just listen to and look at the waves, there is never a wave. It's always a singular wave because as it crests and as it drops, it picks itself right back up again. It's an ebb mm -hmm. and flow. It's a continuous rhythm. It's a one rhythm. And it hasn't changed from the beginning. And it's going to continue. So there is an A point. I'm still on the point. I'm still getting to the point. That's what's up. I love it, man. <laughs> Tell them where they can find you and your artwork, man. Well, they can find me at, uh, I'm on Squarespace's uh, NapoleonJonesHenderson.com at uh, Squarespace. And I'm going to have to uh, open this thing up right quick and I can tell you exactly. It says NapoleonJonesHenderson.com. You'll find me there uh, on my uh, webpage and I continually update it, move stuff off and on. And uh, I can be reached there or you can reach me at nappyhenderson at hotmail.com. That is N-A-P-P-Y Henderson, H-E-N-D-E-R-S-O-N at hotmail.com. So, uh, you know, I'm always, I'm always here. Or I got a phone number, 803 348 <laughs> Eight seven four six. Differently than than your generation, I do have a physical location. You all exist out in the ether. You hear me? What's your, what's your, how can I get in touch with you? Everybody starts spouting out a, a website or email. So I'm cool with that. You know, but I, I, I got ground. So if you go to my website, you can find out where I live. Okay, and you can come come visit the studio and uh, participate in what I'm doing. Or if you're interested in uh, seeing what works I have available for sale, you can come. Or if you want to commission a work, I'm open for that as well. That's what's up, man. Yeah, I got to make a visit up there since you're inviting people. Oh, hey. <laughs> my whole life has been people coming in and out of my life because that's what life is, is the relationship with people. Yeah. You know, and so that's what I do. That's for sure. I appreciate you talking with me, man. Like, yo, it's always great talk to you, man, every time I get a chance to. So, you know what I'm saying? Thank you for, for dropping all these gems on us. Thank you for making this platform available for sharing, because that's what's important. Is and this is the continuum of Africa, and where you're doing exactly what it's about: sharing, making a place for others to be able to communicate and be that larger commune of bad, relevant artists. <laughs> that's what's up, man. I appreciate you, man. All right, man. Take care. And that's it. Another episode of Studio Noise in the Bag. I hope I put y'all on to this Afro Cobra. Y'all need to check them out. Napoleon Jones, Henderson, all the greats, all the history. Next week, another superstar artist, Abby Salami, right here on the Noise. So, all my artists out there, go get some lunch with your elders, buy them a drink, learn something, make some noise. 
It's the noise. Yes, we'll see y'all next week. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Studio Noise Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take a second to rate us and write a review to make sure everybody knows about the noise. Follow us on Instagram at Studio Noise Podcast. 